Open up to Hebrews chapter 2 as we continue our verse-by-verse understanding of really what is a letter written to the early Hebrew Christians of the first century in a a rather uh, sermonic fashion. It really reads and uh, it it teaches uh, like a sermon. So this is just a blessed book that we've been going through. We've uh, been a week or so away from it. And so we're coming back here to chapter 2 and we're going to Read verses 14 through 18 today, and uh, Lord willing, we'll finish up chapter 2 by looking at verses 17 and 18 in particular. Uh, If you do not have a copy of today's sermon notes, uh, please raise your hand and Nolan will get you a copy, but uh, please have those in front of you because I'll be drawing your attention to them uh, throughout today's message. Follow along with me as we read Hebrews chapter 2 verses 14 through 18. The word of the Lord says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he, referring to Jesus, also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is also able to secure or help them that are tempted. And may the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of His Word. Beloved, the passage before us, beginning here in chapter 2, verses 6-18, through unfolds a sad situation. The sad situation of mankind who once held charge over all of creation, but because of sin, found himself in need of being rescued. And how that in God's manifold wisdom, God the Father, beginning in verse 10, we see, provided a way for man to be reconciled unto himself, provided a way that he may bring many sons out of this fallen humanity into glory. And it is this redemptive plan, or we could say this scheme to save sinners, that we begin to learn in verses 13, picked up in verses 14, all the way, all the way down through the end of the chapter. We begin to learn, and we will subsequently learn even more as we work through this book, that God was not responding to some unknown circumstances of sin in his creation. That's not what begins to develop in verses 10 to the end of this book. God, we learned as we looked at verses 10 all the way up through 16, he indeed had decreed these things. He was going to use them to manifest, as we learned in Isaiah this morning, his own glory. Now, what this chapter does 
up until this point is it begins to prepare us and its original readers for the progression of this sermonic letter known as the book of Hebrews that will begin to develop a further theme throughout the remaining chapters of contrasting God's covenantal dealings with mankind and in particular contrasting God's covenantal dealings with the Hebrew people. So what we're reading here in chapter number 2 about man's fall, about God's eternal decree and plan to save man, and about His eternal Son coming into human flesh to redeem them, and then what we're going to learn today is all preparatory work for subsequent chapters that's going to highlight for these Hebrew Christians exactly more detail of the covenant dealings that God has had with them all throughout redemptive history. That's pretty neat. You don't really get that though if you just kind of just get caught up in just the, you know, some of the themes that are caught up in the chapter. I mean, think about the themes that we're talking about. Oh, Jesus dying for our sins. Amen. Being made perfect, we learned about that by suffering even unto death and how he calls us brethren, so forth and so on. But, but while we're down in the trenches of the text and learning and reminding ourselves of these precious truths, it is helpful in introductory comments like this to take a step back and elevate ourselves way above it and say, oh, here's the bigger picture of what's being taught here and here what's going on. Now, part of this preparatory work we cannot help but notice here in chapter number 2, is this very concentrated focus, isn't it, upon our Lord's humanity, upon the nature of His humanity, upon the purpose of His humanity. And today we see the necessity of His humanity in verse 17. And all of this focus on the Lord's humanity can never be properly considered by us, which we've done much of up to this point, this focus upon His humanity can never properly be considered outside of or ignorant of its covenantal context. Or that is, the Lord's humanity, when we come to seek to fully understand it, can never properly be understood or fully appreciated, Abby, unless we understand something of the covenantal agreement or arrangement that verse 17 is teaching us necessitated Him taking upon His human flesh. Because when we have that understanding in the backdrop, oh, we marvel. We stand and we adore this eternal Son of God all the more. Think of it this way. Jesus, who is God of God, we've learned, who is light of light, the only begotten and eternal Son of the Father, we have been learning in chapter number 2, took upon Himself a human nature exactly for the purpose we're going to further explore today of fulfilling the agreement between Himself and the Father by which Jesus secures the forgiveness of your sins and grant you eternal life, period. Now, today we get the wonderful privilege of considering our Lord's humanity in relation to what is often described to 
I've been kind of talking about this a little bit. We're going to learn today, we have the privilege in the text to be able to pause and not speed by or fly so high that we don't recognize it. We get the privilege of today of considering the Lord's humanity connected to or as it is necessary or necessitated by the covenant of grace. I just used a term there that used to be very commonplace in Baptist churches. You would accept covenant of grace and the people in the church would have knew exactly what you meant. But as the centuries have gone by, and as we've kind of diluted the importance of theology from the pulpit, and as we've forsaken catechismal classes, some of these glorious concepts that ought to be in the backdrop whenever we're talking about some of the actual events of Jesus Christ, His life and ministry, they're not connecting in our minds. And thus, we still in many ways are malnutritioned as God's people. And so we today get the awesome privilege of looking at verse 17 in a very interesting way and understanding in relationship to the Lord's humanity how it's connected to what we call the covenant of grace. Now, what do I mean by the covenant of grace? I simply mean a covenant is a mutual agreement between the Father and the Son respecting or concerning the redemption of sinners through the obedience of Christ. That's a very simple definition on the covenant of grace. An agreement, a compact between the Father and the Son regarding the redemption of all of those who the Father would give Jesus. This covenant of grace, we shall learn, it has its basis in eternity. And it finds its fulfillment in the God-man, the incarnate God-man, Jesus Christ. And additionally, we're going to learn today as we consider that, Jesus, the God-man's relationship, His covenant relationship with those He became incarnate to redeem, and especially how He helps them in verse 18. Now, let me just say before we move on and get started, In this passage of chapter number 2, we have, I believe, we have faithfully dealt with the themes of propitiation, appeasing God's wrath. We faithfully, brothers and sisters, if you recall former messages, we have dealt with Christ's penal substitutionary death on our behalf. We have faithfully looked at other aspects of Jesus' human nature, such as how um, uh, how did He take upon Himself in all things you know, and be made like his brother. We faithfully have dealt with those other things, right? And so for the sake of time and the sake of uh, not doing unnecessary repetition, we're not going to treat those things that are in 17 and 18. They're there, but we've already dealt with them because I want us to just explore something beautiful in verse 17 and then finish with an observation in verse 18, okay? So that's how we're going to finish this chapter. How are we then going to look at the two verses that are before us to wrap up our time in chapter 2. Well, as you see in your sermon notes, I want to operate first of all in consideration of our first heading, Christ's obligation to become a man. Christ's obligation to become a man in verse 17. Verse number 17, look at it with me in your Bible, says, Wherefore in all things, it, the authorized version says, it behooved him... To be made like unto his brethren. 
Now coming up to verse number 17, after laying out the primary purpose of Christ's humanity, which we see in the preceding verses, was to actually, in a physical death, destroy what? The devil. And destroy death. We looked at that. The inspired author now in Hebrew uses a rather interesting phrase here in verse 17, which causes us to pause and to make sure we take in full consideration of it. And that way we're eating on the true marrow of what the Word has in store for us. It comes through this interesting phrase, how the authorized version translates it, it behooved him. It behooved him. That word behoove, I gave it to you in your notes. Look at what it means in the Greek. It means to be under obligation. Not just obligation, dear ones, but moral obligation. Not to fail in duty. Behooved, as the authorized version translates it. Or look, to be bound. And so we could rightfully understand why the modern translations, uh, such as the New King James or the NASB, translates it like this. Therefore, he had to be made, you see. There was a duty to be made. There was an obligation of Christ to be made. Like his brethren in every respect, the modern translations have it, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Now I bring this to your attention for the very reason that in my introduction, I said with regard to our Lord's humanity, that verse 17 is talking about, it can never rightly be considered outside of a covenantal context. The Greek phrase here, placing this moral obligation upon Jesus, this bound duty upon Jesus, in order for Jesus to be found honorable, to be found faithful, it demands of us to consider, in light of what we've already learned from him, about Him in chapter 1, what in the world could obligate him that he had to be made flesh? Think about for a moment, chapter 1, what we learned. He is the appointed heir of all that exists. This is the eternal son who became flesh. He upholds all things, both materially and spiritually, by the word of his own power. Verse number 3, chapter number 1, He is, we learned, the express image and likeness of God the Father, sharing in the whole divine essence, essence, substance, power, and eternality of God. Verse number 4, chapter 1, He's superior to and distinctly different from all the heavenly creatures. And chapter 1, verse 12, Being God, He is totally unchangeable. And so then consider with me what in the world, as you see in your notes, would obligate in order to be found faithful and honorable and worthy of praise this divine eternal Son of God? What would obligate Christ? Isn't He, dear brother, the one who puts obligations on us? How could He be obligated to do anything, nay, nay? Oh, that's what we see in the text. The text said, because of what he did in the flesh, it behooved him. He was obligated to take upon himself a human nature. What in the world could obligate Christ? Well, the answer, very simply put, 
is this. His own covenantal commitment. What could ever bound Christ to any obligation? The King of kings, the Lord of lords, His own covenantal commitment. And by covenant, again, I simply mean an agreement or an arrangement with a particular purpose in mind. Look in your notes at the Webster 1828 Dictionary. This is what we mean, young ones, when we talk about Christ's covenant commitment. It is an agreement that He made. It is an agreement that He committed voluntarily to in order that would necessitate and demand if He be found faithful, if He morally be found one who stands up to the duty and the task of what must be accomplished to to secure the purpose, we see right here in the um, definition what Christ did. The idea of a, of a covenant commitment, the idea of covenant we see in the dictionary is a mutual consent or agreement of two or more persons to do or to forbear some act or thing. It is a contract. Now we're getting closer to understand in verse 17 when it says, it behooved Jesus. It was obligatory for Jesus, the divine Son of God. This then causes us to consider the obligation which Jesus committed and bound himself unto, which we read here in verse 17, necessitated that he became an incarnate man. Prior to examining some of the biblical texts regarding this concept of Christ's covenantal commitment here, I mean, that's a proposition that I'm, I'm setting forth for. Your mind should be thinking, okay, I see what the word behoove means. I see how Pastor Doug is constructing this idea that there had to be something that obligated him. But how do we know this is the right interpretation? How do we know that we're handling the word faithfully? Well, we would go to Scripture. But prior to going to Scripture to develop what I'm calling Christ's covenantal commitment... Let's just simply recognize the immediate biblical context we have around our verse right now to begin to help you and I to see that this is a valid biblical doctrine. Look at chapter 1, verse 2. You probably just have to turn a page or so. We find there that there is an indication that there's some sort of eternal transaction that's occurring between Jesus and the Father regarding Jesus' participation in the redemption of mankind. Do you see it in verse number 2? In these last days, God has spoken unto us by His Son, whom He hath appointed heir of all things. There is some sort of appointment taking place there. There's some sort, you could say, plan or scheme, right? Look at verse number 3. When He, referring to the Son, had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, when we uh, exegeted and we taught that text, we understood that there was something necessary that had to take place before Jesus could sit down at the right hand of the Father, and it was this purging of sin. Well, why did he have to do that? Obviously, there was something amidst. There was something at play. There was some sort of obligation going on. All we're simply doing is looking at the immediate context to see that this isn't just 
some construct of theology that's far-fetched. This idea of this eternal agreement that obligates bound duty to Jesus. Chapter 2, where we're at today, verse 10, probably more clearly, we have this illusion to some sort of eternal transaction taking place. The text said it became Him, referring to God the Father, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons into glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Let me just remind you real quick that that Greek word perfect we learned, it meant it carried with it the idea to bring something to an end. Something had to be finished. And so with these surrounding texts, and there's more as you go through in the book of Hebrews, we at least are getting the um, illusion, maybe that's not the best word, I, I would say we can at least ascertain, that's a, that's a better word, we can at least ascertain at this point that something in eternity was going on and transpiring between the Father and the Son, can't we? Right? There was something being implemented. There was some sort of scheme that was being worked out. But, are there other passages that would help us to substantiate this idea that Jesus was duty-bound to become incarnate as a man because, because of His own voluntary, self-imposed oath and covenant agreement? There's many passages. And really, all of these other biblical passages should be, or I should say, it's helpful when we categorize them in three categories. And I've given it to you in your sermon notes. The first category of understanding that there was something being implemented must begin with the first category of understanding God's eternal decree of election or God's desire to save some of mankind out of all the mass of humanity we've been reading about in chapter 2. Perhaps the most clearest representation of this as you have in your summer notes, idea of God desiring to save some fallen men of humanity comes through in Ephesians 1, 3 through 5. And noticed here in this eternal desire of God, the connection of God's desire to save some in, with, and through Jesus Christ. Okay? Jesus is connected in this scheme, this plan, whatever it may be. Ephesians 1, 3 through 5, the Bible says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. And here it is, verse 4. According as He hath chosen us in Him, notice church, before the foundations of the world. Little ones, before the foundations of the world means before the world was ever created. God had a desire. He had a plan. And the sea of lost humanity who rebelled against Him to save some, to have grace on some. But notice now that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children. How? By Jesus Christ to Himself. And so in this first category of Scriptures to help develop this understanding that we're seeing underlines verse number 17, we clearly see that in eternity past, God the Father had a merciful will to rebellious sinful man. And in that plan, whatever it may come, come to fruition and be, 
It involves the gateway, the door, to be reconciled unto Him, to be adopted into His family, which is Jesus Christ. Wow, we're starting to see a little more clearly here this eternal basis of what obligated Jesus to take upon Him human flesh. That comes out again in Revelation 17.8. This idea that God had from the beginning of time before the foundations of the world. We use that biblical language. Some written down in the books of life to save. Revelation 17.8. Here amidst what can be arguably um, difficult passage to understand, but the point we want to draw out is very clearly communicated. Look with me in your sermon notes. The beast that thou sawest was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder. So right there, it's just talking about some uh, end time events that are going to take place at the final you know, destruction of Satan, so forth and so on. But here's for our purposes right now to see whose names were not written in the book of life, here it is again, from the foundation of the world. Again, we're just considering this covenantal agreement, this covenantal concept between the eternal Father and the eternal Son and eternity past to save some, which duty bound Jesus, morally obligated Him to come into time, space, and history to die for His church. I've given you Romans 8, 29 through 30, but again, it's just proving the same point that we've already established. But there's, moving forward, a second category of Scripture that helps us to see more clearly that we can be on safe ground of being fully confident that what obligates Jesus to do what He did by being incarnate as a man is bound to this love between Him and the Father. And it comes through, perhaps most clearly, in the book of John and the high priestly prayer of Jesus. So let's look at that. It was too much to put in your sermon notes. But let's turn to John chapter 17. This is one of the most precious insights to the relationship between Jesus Christ and the Heavenly Father. It is as if it were we're getting a a sneak peek into Jesus' prayer closet here. John 17. Now this scripture would fall, as you see in your sermon notes, in trying to understand the biblical basis for this concept of this eternal agreement between the Father and the Son for the redemption of the elect. This section of biblical scriptures would fall under the category, as you see in your notes, of an eternal agreement. And it's okay, and that's what we're saying, this concept of a covenant, the eternal covenant between the Father and Son for the redemption of the elect. So there was a desire of God to save the elect, connected with Jesus Christ we saw. And now we come here to John 17. We could go other places, but this is the most clearest. That clearly substantiates that there was an agreement. There was a covenant. There was an arrangement between the Father and Son based in eternity past to enact and to do what the Father desired to do in the passages we just looked at. John 17, these words spake Jesus and he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour is come, glorify thy son, that thy son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to him as many 
as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, notice what the text says, whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. Here it is. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Wait a minute. You mean there was some sort of pre-organized arrangement and agreement and plan? And that is what obligated, that's what gave the duty to Christ to come and do a work which the Father gave him? That's clearly what's being taught. That's clearly what's being taught. Moving on. And now, O Father, verse 5, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. What's Jesus saying here? Father, I've come. I have been faithful. I have done everything that I agreed and I committed to do. I'm paraphrasing this, obviously. You see it in the text. The construction's right there. And now, O Father, since I have morally committed everything I said I would do, oh, may I come back and have the glory that I shared with you from eternity past. Verse 6, I have manifested thy name, taught his name, unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest to me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. There's that sending, appointment, a plan, a work, a scheme. Verse 9, I pray for them, I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine, and all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. And let's jump down to verse number 24. He, he continues on in this way, talking with the Father about this concept of this idea that they previously agreed to and that He has come and He has fulfilled. And he comes to verse 24. Father, He says, I will that they also whom Thou hast given Me be with Me where I am, that they may behold My glory which Thou hast given Me for Thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. All of this talk, all of these concepts, this motif of internality, of what's going on between the Father and the Son for the redemption of mankind, you see, is building up a solid foundation of what we call the covenant of grace. Well, Jesus alludes to His doing this work, doesn't He, in John 17. He alludes to the fact that there was some sort of arrangement, there was some sort of agreement, and he had come and fulfilled it. And that brings us to a third category of scriptures that we would want to put in our construction to make sure that we're doing theology and we're doing interpretation the right way. And that would be the conditions of this agreement being fulfilled or performed by Jesus Christ, as you see in your notes. Now, for the sake of time, we're not going to go through Isaiah 53, but many of you... Even some of you young ones in your homeschooling, you've had to memorize Isaiah 53, where it gives this detailed uh, description, doesn't it, of the promised Messiah who would do the work of forgiving 
a man's iniquities and washing away their sins. It goes through line by line and anyone who's standing on this side of the cross reads it. And there's no way that you can escape it. That what it's talking about is Jesus of Nazareth. Isn't it? Now look in your study notes. I've given you a website to go look at. It's called the Treasury of Scriptural Knowledge. Beloved, I use this often when I study and when I prepare sermons. It's over 500,000 cross-references in Scriptures going all the way back to the patristic era that have been compiled by the hoary heads of the church studying their Bibles. And you can pull up Isaiah 53 and I wouldn't even have enough paper to print off all of the cross-references that show that Jesus Christ in John 17 did the fulfillment that is being required of the Messiah to fulfill the work, to fulfill the plan that we just read about in John 17 that had to be done in order that we could be saved. There's so many. Jesus came and He fulfilled it all. He fulfilled it all. Now, while the term covenant of grace that we've kind of been considering, making sure that there's true and actual biblical substantiation that can come up underneath it before we start using terms and we put understanding to those terms of why we believe them, while that term covenant of grace admittedly can't be found in any book or verse of the Scriptures, it is, I hope you would agree at this point, a valid theological concept that helps us to better understand now what's in the backdrop of what's mentioned in verse number 17. I think it would be helpful, especially since sometimes the use or introduction to new terms, before we move forward, we just kind of get some basic principles of what's behind verse 17 that's obligating Jesus in this concept, a biblical concept called the covenant of grace. Before we move forward, let's just nail down some of its basic tenets so that we can appreciate its significance all throughout the Bible. The first one, as you see in your notes, let's make sure we understand when was the covenant of grace made or established? Well, we see, don't we, from John 17, it was established in eternity. That's how Jesus was speaking. This covenant, this agreement between the Father and the Son that we call the covenant of grace, it was established in eternity in the biblical language before the foundations of the world. And while this covenant of grace was made in the divine counsels of eternity, we know that it was put into operation in human history after Adam's fall. By further and further steps, we see glimpses, traces of the manifestation of this eternal covenant made in eternity past. And so we can rightfully think, but we can't get sidetracked here, we can rightfully think about this eternal covenant in two phases. One is how Jesus was referring to in John 17, in eternity. And then in another way, in that he was doing this in John 17, 17 too. He says, I've manifested thy word to them, and they have believed. That's the historical phase. And so the covenant of grace has a concept of something that took place in eternity and then being made actualized in a historical sense through the conversion of actual sinners. So when was it established? In eternity. When is it seen? When is it known? When is it manifested? In history. But look at your sermon notes. Who were the two parties of the covenant of grace? That's very clear now, isn't it? 
It was God the Father, and it was Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ as the representative of all of those he said in John 17, verse 2, who the Father would give him. And so this concept, this covenant of grace, it exists between only two parties, the eternal Father and the eternal Son, standing as if it were the high priest, the mediator of all of those who God, in the first category of scriptures we looked at, desired to give unto the Son and to redeem out of all of humanity. That's a very important part of understanding or having a proper understanding of this covenant of grace. Some people can construe it sometimes. And they think that the covenant arrangement is somehow between them and the Father. No, no, no. It's between the Father and the Son who stands in your stead and represents you as a federal representative. What was the objective of the covenant of grace? That duty bound Jesus morally obligated him, behooved him to take upon himself a man's nature and to suffer even unto death. The objective, oh, but what a blessed objective. Oh, but what an eternal, merciful objective. The purpose was the eternal salvation of sinners. All of those sinners who the Father desired to give unto the Son was the sole objective of this eternal agreement. And I can tell, perhaps, that we may uh, be tempted to ask, what's the importance of all of this theology? What's the importance of learning all of these concepts and the undergirding biblical substantiation of it? Oh, church, it is of absolute importance for the reality and the validity of Christianity that we understand this concept in eternity past for one purpose and one purpose only, for the glory of God as we read in Isaiah, that His name would not be polluted. He created a perfect world and sin and destruction brought death and darkness into that world. And for His own glory and for only His glory, Jesus' duty bound Himself to come into time, space, and history to vindicate the righteous, the good, the lovely, the beautiful creation that His Father through Him created. And it is through that You could say elevation of the glory of God that all of Christianity, its validity and reality finds its foundation. It's not found in my felt needs. It's not found in our temporary relief. The validity and the reality of Christianity rests on the glory of God and how that glorious God the maker of all things, could be mindful as Hebrews chapter 2 taught us of these lowly creatures, these sinful, lowly creatures, these dirty, filthy, lowly creatures that are made lower than the angels. But He did. But He did. Think for a moment, dear one, 
of the deepest recesses of your depravity. There has to be somewhere in your conscience a reminder of what it is that pricked your heart and showed you your need for forgiveness. This is the foundation of the gospel that this glorious God was willing, obligated Himself as the eternal, pure, holy light and Son to take upon Himself a human nature so that I and you could be counted clean. The love, the mercy, the eternal compassion that is available at the cross of Christ finds at its core this agreement between the Father and the Son. We can only, by exploring this text, get but a small glimpse, a small little ray of light of the purest expression of love which exists within God. The Father's love, the Son's love for the Father, that the Son, for the glory and the namesake of His Father, would be willing to come and to die for sinners. We will never fully understand that. Oh, but on that day, on the day of the Feast of the Lamb, when we are, as His adopted sons and daughters, brought into that glorious celebration, brothers and sisters, we will clearly understand that love. The love that is sufficient for our salvation, that is, if it were strong golden chains that reach out, get a hold of us and bring us to the cross, we understand but vaguely. Oh, it's sufficient for us to taste salvation. It's sufficient to maintain us in the way following Christ. But understand, as Paul says, we still see things through a glass that's dimly lit, that's still darkened. And when we are free from these bodies, and we were in the presence of our triune God, think about it, we will fully be raptured up in the understanding of the pure, holy light and love of the Trinity. We can't even hardly comprehend that. Well, I've gotten way off my notes, but that's preaching, isn't it? The eternal compact, this covenant of grace, it serves, beloved, I'm stressing this point, as the framework, the master blueprint to which the Son obligated Himself in a duty-bound way to bring that which was once in darkness and destruction and transform it into light and to love and to re- and reconciliation. It is true we can say that sin and the devil had their designated time and purpose. But now the Son, as if it were, in a covert, undercover operation, verse 17, He hides Himself with man's nature to move forward the redemptive timetable and fulfill that which from eternity past He covenanted to do. To represent His sinful and His fallen people, as the text says, in things pertaining to God and to make reconciliation for their sins. We've dealt with the reconciliation of sin, the propitiation, etc. 
But notice in the text, verse 17, notice with me, for the first time, our text refers to Jesus as a high priest. And it will do so again here very soon in chapter 3, verse 1. However, we're not going to unpack that right now because later on in chapter 5, that becomes the main focus, this idea, this motif of Jesus being a high priest. But let us notice here, at least in verse 17, that Jesus mediating... Standing as a representative, standing as a covenant representative for his brethren in all things pertaining to God, he exhibited compassion. That's what the word mercy means there. And faithfulness, which carries with it the idea of both obedience and trustworthiness in his office and his earthly ministry. For the remainder of our time, I want us to look at verse number 18 and consider some things that I hope are a very much practical Christian use. Let's look at verse 18 together. The Bible says, well, I'm still in John 17 up here in the pulpit Bible. Let me get to my notes here. Verse 18, you see with me in Hebrews chapter 2. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to aid Or you could say, He is able to help them that are tempted. And I know we're running out of time, but but stick with me here. We we want to get done with chapter 2. And we don't want to gloss over these precious words here in verse 18. In connection with what we have in verse 18, you see also in your sermon notes from chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, this concept and this idea of Jesus and His human nature being of help to us, being some aid to us, And it's connected with his own temptation. Look at verses uh, 15 and 16, chapter 4. I've given your notes. The author, the inspired author here of Hebrews, again says there elsewhere in chapter 4, We have not a high priest which cannot be touched with with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Now, it's important to understand that this declaration that the inspired writer is making, the audience that it was coming into, remember, they were being tempted from a lot of different directions to apostatize from the faith. And he's wanting to share with them, people who are being tempted to apostatize from the faith, that Jesus was tempted in all the same ways you were, it can give you help. Have you ever thought for a moment and let that just sink in? What he, the proposition that the writer is actually putting forth for you to accept? That Jesus, the eternal Son of God, that made this glorious covenant commitment and came into time, space, and history, being fully God and fully man, he was tempted in all ways that I am tempted? Have you ever been guilty perhaps, of thinking in this way? I know I have. That because of what we say, young ones, is Jesus' hypostatic union, a fancy phrase simply meaning that two distinct natures are brought into one being. A fully divine nature of God and a fully human nature brought into one being, one person, that's Jesus. That's the hypostatic union. Have you ever been guilty of thinking because of that hypostatic union 
that somehow Jesus' temptations that we read about in the Bible were limited or minimized or that the corners of them weren't as sharp as your temptations were? They were dulled a little bit. I mean, after all, he was fully God. Ah, but he was fully man. The short answer in light of verse number 18 in chapter 2, the short answer in light of chapter 4, verses 15 and 16 and elsewhere in the Bible, is that Jesus was fully tempted both in degree and manner as you and I are, but because of his complete allegiance to the covenant that he made with the Father and his love and mercy rooted in the salvation of his elect church, he obeyed perfectly. Notice what I said. Jesus, the Bible teaches, was tempted in degree and manner. Now immediately what a lot of you are probably doing is you're thinking of the manner in which which you're tempted. You're thinking, well, I just had a particular temptation and it manifested itself in this manner. Um, I was told not to do this, whatever that this is, and I'm tempted to do it. But what lies at the root of that temptation? Really, truly, it's all the same stuff, isn't it? Covetousness, fear, etc., etc. Those are the things that are at the root of the temptation. The temptation manifests itself out of those roots, distinctly different for every single one of us, depending on what the situation is. So it is biblical. It is proper. Indeed, it will only be helpful to you in your practical experience as a Christian that you understand that in a degree, Jesus was tempted as you. Do you recall that when he was elevated up by Satan himself, young ones in the wilderness, to only do one thing, to bow down and to worship him, that he would be given all of the wealth in the entire world. But what was Satan appealing to there? He was appealing to the sin of covetousness. Jesus as a man, as a man. Oh, he would have loved comfort. He would have loved prestige. He would have loved wealth. He would have loved the ease of life. He knew very well as God what was designed for him in John 17 of the work and what it prescribed of what he would have to do. And so it's proper to say that Jesus in degree understood and felt the real temptation of covetousness. Ah, but as the righteous Lamb of God, as the obedient one, what did He do? He said, no, no, no. Because it's going to jeopardize, it's going to bring in complications, the mission that I've been sent by God to do. What about the Garden of Gethsemane? When he's there praying and he knows what lies ahead. And the, 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 the degree of the temptation to, to bail out and, to, and to, 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 to not go through with it, which was at the root of it, a fear, right? Can it truly be that I will be brought back to my glory as the Father promised and I prayed in John 17? Is it true? Will it really happen? Friends, this is what caused the agony in the Garden of Gethsemane for Christ in His humanness to sweat blood. That's a scientific fact. 
You can actually sweat blood. But Naomi, you only sweat blood if you're under, a person is under the most excruciating stress and, and uh, agony and, you know, just the, the pressure of something. That's to the degree of the temptation that Jesus actually experienced. And praise be to the honor of His name, He stood fast. And then the angels ministered to Him. Do you see, you have to understand that Jesus, for you to fully understand verse 18 of the help that He could give you, that He in degree as a man experienced the same level and intensity of temptation. Not one degree less. It's very likely that someone in here right now is thinking about their most intense resistance they've ever experienced against sin. And you somewhat get a little bit of a taste of what Jesus endured in the garden. Meaning, you didn't think you were going to make it through. By God's grace, you committed yourself, you leaned your shoulder in, and you set yourself in the paths of holiness, and you knew, I'm going to conquer this by God's grace. I'm going to obey the command in Romans where it says, mortify ye, you, the deeds of the flesh through the Spirit. And you said, amen to that. I'm going to do that. And you waged war. And an hour went by, and the temptation didn't flee. You went to bed that night and the temptation is still on your shoulder and you didn't get a wink of sleep. You woke up in the middle of the night and the temptation is still looming there, haunting your unsanctified flesh to give in, to let go of the resistance. And by God's grace, you prayed. You sought His face in earnest prayer. It was as if to you in anguish, anguish, you were sweating actual bloods of tear, although you didn't. You see, Jesus was tempted just in the same degree as we are. To bring this out, look in your sermon notes. I found this helpful from one trusted commentator. He says, the power of Jesus' sympathy for the one who's tempted, his children. It lies not in the mere capacity to experience emotional feelings as a man like you and I. Rather, his sympathy lies in the lessons of his own human experience. Sympathy, this is very clear, and we have to make the distinction, it's important. Sympathy with the sinner in their trial does not depend on the experience of sin, No, Jesus didn't have to sin to sympathize with you and understand where you're coming from. Being able to sympathize with the sinner in the trial does not depend on the experience of sin, but on the experience of knowing and confronting the full strength of the temptation to sin, which only the sinless can know in its full intensity. Jesus understands the full intensity of every temptation that you will face. And so how does this practically come down and help us then, brothers? Is this just some hypothetical, theological concept that's floating out there and we see it on the pages of the Bible? But, but, but there's no light switch that gets turned on. Jesus doesn't turn on a light switch in me when temptation comes around. And I, and I want to do the wrong, right thing, but I find myself not being able to do the right thing. Brothers and sisters, Jesus doesn't come down and push a button in you 
And then you all of a sudden have like a ray of light shining out of the clouds of heaven. And you think, oh, now I just only want to do the right thing. That's not how Jesus helps you in your time of temptation. No, what he's done for you is he's given you his example. He's given you his example and understanding that he has been through the thick of it. And thus, when I come to him, I can rightly say, oh, Jesus Jesus, you know what I'm going through right now. You know how hard this is. Jesus, you know how I'm trying, but I I just feel like I can't do it. I feel like I'm going to give in. Jesus, help me. And Jesus, you know you're not praying to someone who's so detached that he never experienced the same degree or intensity that you're experiencing. He did. He sympathizes with you in those states. And He gave you and I a beautiful example of how to endure temptation. And to any hoary head, no matter how many times you failed, you have found this to be the successful path. You use His Word. You pray God's Word. You don't give up on His Word. Now I've given you a couple texts just to pray that I in my own life have found helpful. Psalms 23 by far is the best. And perhaps this is sanctified uh, speculation. This is what Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was reminding Himself of these truths. Psalms 23, verses 2 through 6. I'll just read it for you. Verse 2, He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness. Notice again, for His name's sake. And yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear evil, for thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest the table before me in the presence of my enemy. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We could go to Matthew 5, 10 through 12, talking about blessed are they that are persecuted. You see, it is Scripture and these scriptural truths that the Spirit's going to use to help you to wage war against your temptation. Now there's some young people in here that are, you're in a transition of your life. And believe me, your parents and I, we could definitely sympathize with you because we've been through those transitions ourselves. Some more, some less. But nonetheless, you're going to feel at times you're the only one in the world that feels certain ways about what you're thinking and what you're tempted to to think. Your parents and your church fellow friends, brothers and sisters have come alongside you and they've said this is what the Word of God uh, teaches and what it means and it's the the rule and the guide, the faithful rule and the guide for your life. And you're going to be tempted in the weaknesses and the moments of the weakness of your own flesh to think something different and to begin to to feel certain things that are different than what the truth of God's Word says. I'm here to tell you that those temptations to go wayward, those temptations to go against what God's Word says can be answered, answered, understood, helped by coming to Christ in prayer. Your high priest asking for his sympathy, compassion, and understanding and praying the Scriptures. Fight, fight to the end. Because here's something you need to grasp. Even when you feel as though God has forgotten you, in your moment of temptation, brother, it would be better to be found on your knees 
weary, scarred, and bloodied in the battle against temptation, looking as though you were weak and you are not having the victory, than to be found in compromise and defeat. I'd rather be found blood-soaked in the battle and as if I'm having no victory, looking like the saddest, most pitiful Christian in the world, than to give in and to have defeat. Stay in the fight. Oh God, help us to fight the temptation of sin to the very end. What happens? What happens when you lay down your sword? What happens when you finally stop putting up the resistance? Does God just say, you know what? I had better plans for you. I was hoping you would be that, you know, someday commander and general of the army, uh, but you're, you're just not going to cut it. No, that's not the case. He invites you to return back to Him again and again. After a season of backsliding, Jeremiah 3.1 told the, taught to the, to the nation of Israel, they say a man, if he puts away his wife and she go from him and become another man's, shall he return unto her again? Shall not the land be greatly polluted if that happens? But thou hast played the harlot with many lovers. Listen to these words. Yet return again to me, saith the Lord. The same concept comes through in Isaiah 43.25, Isaiah 49.15. All these concepts of God being willing to take us back after failure and temptation. Well, we've run out of time, but I just want to say at the very end of the message here in way of, by way of conclusion, these words in verse 18 are so important related to Christ and His own temptations for us. Because if Christ were not merciful... Sinners could have no confidence in coming to God. If Christ wasn't compassionate, we could have no confidence coming to God. We have instead a high priest who we go to and He mediates on our behalf before the Father and says, have mercy. Have mercy. Have compassion on my son, on my brother. I know what that's like. If Christ were not faithful and trustworthy, it being a complete, obligatory, perfect high priest to the law of God, believers would not have a continued boldness to come before God. The only grounds I have to come before the thrice holy throne of God is by the righteousness and the faithfulness of my high priest, Jesus Christ. Amen? That's the only way that the writer of Hebrews later on is going to tell us to come boldly before the throne. He sympathizes with us, so He's our mediator right there at the right hand of God. And we can only even approach the throne room of God in prayer because of what Christ has done for us. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we thank Thee for the time that we were afforded, Lord, to explore Your Word. O oh Lord, to be reminded of some of these very blessed truths that pertain to not only Your love that exists between You and Christ, but also Christ for His people. We pray as we prepare our hearts now to remember the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus, that You would, O oh God, I pray, 
just reassure us afresh that Christ is our Lord. He is our Savior. And right now, He is at the throne of intercession, pleading for sympathy and compassion on our behalf. We thank You. We love You. All because You, we learned today, first loved us through Thy Son. It's in His holy name we pray and ask these things. Amen.